The resurrection is an incredible thing. It's powerful. It helps us to know that death is not the end. It reminds us that new life is possible. The resurrection is a strong metaphor for talking about how we can experience abundant life from God, not just in the next life, but now in this life. It's about how we die to our sin and are raised to new life in Christ. These are powerful things. But when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, there is more to it than metaphor or new understanding. Something more fundamental. And it's something that's being lost somehow, I think, and needs to be regained. It's actually the foundation of what we believe as Christians. It's something so simple, and yet it can be really hard to believe and to grasp. And that is that the resurrection is not only metaphor, it's not strictly spiritual. It wasn't Jesus' spirit floating around after the resurrection, it was him, it was his body raised from the dead, back alive with his followers. A changed body, but his earthly body nonetheless. It's actually a pretty unbelievable thing for us that someone would be dead one day, two days, and then on the third day, not dead. A lot of people like the idea of an only metaphorical or an only spiritual resurrection, I think because an actual resurrection is simply too hard to swallow. And we might look at the Bible and say, well, it's okay for the Bible and for biblical times, that's okay, but for modern scientific people, no. But I have news for you. In biblical times, they didn't believe in the resurrection any more than we do today. It was as big of a miracle, as big of an unbelievable kind of thing. Now, some contend that really what we have in the Bible is just all a big conspiracy, right? Like, maybe Jesus' followers just made it all up. Maybe it was just one uh, thing that was floating around, one idea amongst many other competing ideas about Jesus, and this eventually won out maybe for, like, political reasons or something like that. There are those theories out there. But the thing is, this isn't something that anyone in their right mind would make up. See, his followers, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And the Messiah was supposed to defeat God's enemies. Last week, we heard about Jesus riding into the city on Palm Sunday. And the prevailing belief or feeling at that time would have been, This is great. Jesus is entering the city, and and we'll get a big crowd together, and we can rise up against God's enemies, the Romans, so that we can defeat them, the occupying force that was in Jerusalem and Israel at that time. That's what they would have thought. Now, we find that in the period around Jesus before his birth and then after his death and his resurrection as well, we find that there were other people 
who claimed to be the Messiah. And you can find this in other Jewish writings of the time. Most of them were killed. Now, when those people were killed, their followers concluded, well, we, haven't, we didn't succeed in throwing out the Romans. Essentially, the Romans would, would squash any, uh, any uh, uprising, kill the leader, and kill many of the, the followers. And when that happened, the surviving followers, well, what they would do is they'd think, well, I guess that person wasn't the Messiah then. So let's go find someone else who might be the Messiah. Let's go find a new one. Because think about what happens when leaders of movements die. Initially, there's despair and there's grief and there's a fair amount of confusion, right? Now, depending on the leader, their death may come to be seen as the death of a martyr and then that leads to greater resolve amongst those committed to the cause. Right? Think about someone like Martin Luther King Jr., right? Yeah, grief and despair and terrible confusion. But it eventually could lead to greater commitment. But the thing is, no one ever claims that the leader who died is risen from the dead. Because no one would risk making something like that up. Think about the false hope that it would promote. If the people who made something like that up were found out, it would be the absolute end of the movement, just like that. Making up the resurrection of your leader would put the entire movement at risk. No one in their right mind would take that kind of chance. Least of all, do things like pass it on to their children. The only reason they would do that is if it was true. And if you were going to make something up in the first century, resurrection from the dead would not be the choice. Why not just have Jesus appear in visions only? People believed back then that the dead could appear in visions and dreams. They didn't think you should try to seek that out, but they believed it was at least possible. And you find that later writings about Jesus actually do portray Jesus appearing to people in visions and giving them secret knowledge about the world and about God. But the earliest accounts have this unbelievable story of the empty tomb, of his body no longer being there because it's walking around. This unbelievable story of the resurrection, which makes no sense if it's a made-up story. Now, to be fair, resurrection as an idea was around in Jewish belief, but it was also really specific. It was something that would happen for everyone at some time and a fixed point in the future. And so there wasn't a belief in individual resurrection. Now, the other thing, if you're going to make up a story you want to, and have everyone believe it as truth, you want to make sure that you have really credible people telling your story. But when you read the accounts of the empty tomb, the first witnesses that we're told about of the resurrection are women. Now, that might sound fine to us, but in the ancient world, in that time and that place, Women's testimony wasn't even valid in court cases. So let me get this straight. Let's make up a story that no one would really ever believe about something that nobody really believes in. And I know, let's write it down so that everybody knows that it was women who nobody would ever listen to in a courtroom 
as the fir first witnesses to that story. Why would you ever make that up? Let's write that down. That would be a bad strategy, unless, of course, it's actually what happened. Because then you would just have to tell the truth and let the consequences fall where they may. Now, if you were trying to keep a movement going, and that was your only concern, a way better strategy, uh, if human beings would have been in charge of all this and not God, it would have been to say, well, let's get James, Jesus' brother, or maybe Peter, uh, to carry the torch of revolution. And we'll just sort of say, you know what, Jesus was a great teacher, but not the Messiah. So let's keep searching for a new Messiah. Maybe Peter could be the Messiah. Or if he's not, maybe he can lead us and maybe the, new, maybe the Messiah will come. But you see, over and over again, Peter and the other leaders of the early church, they just keep sticking to their story and pointing to the resurrection as the cornerstone of absolutely everything. And none of the leaders of the early church ever tried to set themselves up as the new Messiah. They all said it was Jesus. They all said he died. And they all said he raised again. They all pointed to Jesus and the resurrection. And they wouldn't have made it up because they, they didn't understand why it would be so significant until it actually happened. In fact, the Gospels even record that. The disciples are confused every time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. They have no idea what he's talking about. It's only when it happens that they look back and see, oh, that's what's going on. The first followers, when Jesus was raised, they were shocked, even afraid. They were in awe. This is the story that we heard. Uh, Mark's gospel is the shortest resurrection story, just the story of the empty tomb. And it ends basically with the women being amazed and shocked and afraid. God had done something completely unexpected and unprecedented. So I think the absolute best conclusion is not that this is made up, but rather that it must have actually happened as it is told. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, well, okay, I might have already believed that coming here. So what? That's amazing how infrequently we ask that question. Okay, it's all true. So what? But that's exactly what the first believers had to start dealing with. If the Messiah is risen... What does this mean? And they started to think through the implications of this. You see, in Jesus, God took what the Messiah was supposed to do and, and magnified it to global, universal, and even eternal status. So that Messiah was supposed to establish a new kingdom for God's people through the defeat of God's enemies. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's enemies are defeated, but they're not the enemies that everybody thought he was going to defeat. It's not the Romans, but it's something far greater. The powers of sin and death are defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. What Jesus did through his death and resurrection also was not just for those people there, for that time and place, but it was for all times and all places. We talked about on Good Friday about our captivity to the power of sin and how we don't like to think about this captivity, but it is true. I think we also need to hear the word sin in a broader 
sense, the largest, broadest sense we can. We usually hear that word as just things that we do wrong. But it's more than that as well. The Apostle Paul talks about sin and death as powers that hold sway over the human race. He, he links sin to basically being human. So he says, yes, human beings are created in the image of God. But we're under this power of sin. It's just part of who we are somehow. That as human beings, we consistently have actions and thoughts that are contrary to what God wants for us. That's maybe the most basic way of understanding the power of sin, but the, the power itself is more insidious and subversive than that. The power of sin incorporates really everything that is wrong in the world. It's what we might think of if we think of our world or as the human race as being in a fallen condition. Now, our narrow definitions of sin are not helpful when we think about everything in the world that needs to be put right. That isn't just about our little things that we do wrong. Now, we do those. But that's not the whole story. We all know people who are touched by things that are simply not right. And sometimes, it's from things that we would clearly call sin, such as abuse or drug use. But other things that we would say are not right, we wouldn't put in the sin category normally. Things like cancer or mental illness. But in the biblical view of the fallen nature of the world and of human beings, being under the power of sin, we need to include everything about our world that is not what God intends for it, regardless of its source. When we make Good Friday and Easter Sunday only about a narrow idea of sin, we miss that Jesus came to redeem all of humanity to fix all of our brokenness. When we make it on only into morality, I'm not saying we should never, we should always look at our morality, but if we make it into only that, then we miss that Jesus' body was raised. And we miss that embedded in that fact is a promise of a renewed body and a renewed spirit for us. Karl Barth, one of the most prolific theologians of the 20th century, he speaks about the mystery of Good Friday being that God hangs on the cross. And he speaks of the mystery of Easter. He says the mystery of Easter is that man is raised from the dead. In the one man, Jesus, we find our God dying on the cross and we find a human being being raised to glory. Put these together, Bart says, and they form an exchange, a substitution where God hangs in man's place where we ought to be. And man is glorified in God's place where really only God should be. Yet we are risen with Jesus. When the powers of sin and death were defeated in the resurrection of the Messiah, the human race is redeemed. To deny the importance of Easter, to deny the resurrection, is to say that human beings are not in need of redemption. But just look around and try to say that that's... How can you not see that we need redemption? 
When we deny the importance of Easter, we're assuming that human beings are basically already perfect. And we know that's not true. When we deny the importance of Easter, we're basically saying everything's fine and we don't really need God. But to grab hold of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is to receive amazing grace from God. It isn't that he just makes us a little bit better than we are so that we can, you know, function in our life. It's that he redeems us so that we are seen by him as though we have no more sin. In fact, he makes it that we do have no more sin according to him because of his son. We are seen by God as right, yet still truly ourselves. This is incredible. What great love God has for us because he sees everything about us. He sees all the darkness, all the sin, all the insecurities, all the flaws. But because of what he did in Jesus Christ, God's view of us is that we are fully beautiful, fully worthy, fully righteous. The resurrection of the Messiah means that God's true enemies were defeated. Evil has been given its fatal blow. Sin has been overcome. Death itself has lost its power. It really happened. He is risen. The first followers of Jesus made the resurrection the focus of their lives because it was true. It changed everything for all of them. And none of them would have thought that that would have happened. None of them would have thought it up. But God did think it up. God planned this from long ago. His son defeating the powers of sin and death. His son giving himself for us and then vindicated. His son, the Messiah, our Lord, risen with healing. Risen to defeat God's enemies. The decisive action has already been taken in Jesus. Humanity is redeemed in him. What great news. What good news. This is the gospel. He is risen. Amen.